Once again, South African police cross the line today, Friday, March 1st, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. Eight South African police officers charged with murder for dragging a handcuffed man behind their van. Also, Dennis Rodman got into North Korea, and so could you, says this tour operator. It's like travel anywhere. You know, you book, you put down your deposit, and we can get you a visa, providing you're not a journalist. And later, why an Egyptian-American wants to run the Jerusalem Marathon without shoes. Barefooted. Barefoot? Absolutely. It's a holy place. I could not believe that I'm walking in Jerusalem wearing my shoes. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The police blotter for the past year in South Africa has been soaking up a lot of ink and a lot of blood. And in some big cases, it's the actions of the officers themselves that wound up under scrutiny. The latest episode was captured on several shaky cell phone videos. Uniformed policemen appear to handcuff a thin young man to the back of a police van. The officers then drive the van, dragging the helpless man as onlookers shout and scream. The man, a taxi driver, an immigrant from Mozambique, later died, and the officers involved are now in jail. New York Times correspondent Lydia Polgreen is in Johannesburg, and she's been analyzing the video. If you listen to what the people are saying and have it interpreted into English, people are questioning what the police are doing, asking, what did he do? What did he do? And the police uh, shout back, well, he started it. So I think clearly there was shock and dismay at what was happening. And later on, you saw a fairly substantial crowd of protesters gather outside the police station to express their anger at what had happened. This is particularly significant because uh, the taxi driver was from Mozambique and South Africa has um, for years suffered from terrible uh, xenophobic violence Mm. where you have these vigilante mobs that go after immigrants who are blamed for taking jobs of South Africans, who are blamed for crime and other things, rightly or wrongly. So it's particularly striking that in this case, the police were going after a foreigner and you had a largely South African crowd questioning their activities. You've also written, though, how for many South Africans, the images are reminiscent of apartheid police tactics. Absolutely. I mean, who can't think of a a dead black man found in a police cell and not think about Steve Biko, who was, of course, the black consciousness movement leader who was beaten to death by police officers in 1977. In the years of apartheid, the police officers would have been largely black and they would have been serving a racist government. The situation now is you have a democratically elected, largely black government that reflects the demographics of the country. And these police officers uh, involved were all black as well. So I think that it's deja vu, but uh, almost like a photo negative of deja vu. And I think for many people, that's incredibly shocking. I got to say, for me, my thoughts turned to the tragic 1998 story of African-American James Byrd Jr., who was dragged to his death by white racists in Jasper, Texas. These are black policemen, though, for the most part, doing the same thing to a black man. What kind of conversations has that sparked in South Africa? 
you have to remember that South Africa's police, their job used to be essentially to protect white people from black people and keep black people under control. They had no interest in protecting black people from crime. So at the end of apartheid, uh, there was a broad effort to change the force. They changed the name from the South African police force to the South African police service. They were supposed to serve the public, not harass them. Huge amounts of money were spent. Um, all these reforms were brought in. But then suddenly there was a huge crime wave. And uh, the government felt that it needed to crack down and crack down hard. So you had this terrible combination of factors. You had lots of crime. You had many, many new police officers on the job with very little training. You had rising corruption. And that, of course, was a recipe for disaster. And we've seen the number of killings of civilians by police skyrocket in recent years. And from these shores, I've got to say the last 12 months has really seen a, a degradation of the image and reputation of South Africa's police, the, the officers who opened fire on striking platforms a miners killing 34 last year. A key detective working on the murder case of uh, Olympian Oscar Pistorius is bungled testimony and turns out he actually faces attempted murder charges himself. So what do you think it's going to take to get a professional police force in South Africa? That's what everybody's asking themselves today. And when I talk to experts in policing, they say that really deep security sector reform is needed, more training. Uh, they need to crack down hard on corruption, and they need to orient the force towards serving the public rather than going after criminals. Clearly, it's a message that needs to come from the top and needs to trickle all the way down to the policemen on the beat. We've been speaking with New York Times correspondent Lydia Polgreen in Johannesburg about the shocking video from South Africa of police dragging a man behind a police van. The man later died. Lydia, thank you. Thank you. By the way, you can see the video that sparked the controversy in South Africa at theworld.org. It's violent and not easy to watch, but it is an undeniable part of the story. Up the east coast of Africa in Kenya, they're getting ready to hold a presidential election on Monday. You may recall the last presidential vote there in 2007. It was followed by a wave of ethnic violence. More than 1,500 Kenyans died. The vote and the violence produced a stalemate between candidates that took weeks to resolve. Eventually, a power-sharing arrangement was negotiated. But once again, with this new presidential vote, there are concerns about violence erupting. Freelance journalist Michael Kaloki reports from Nairobi for the BBC. I want to know why it feels this election, Michael, will be a reprise of that 2007 violence. But just a bit of background first. Tell us about the two leading candidates. The two front runners in this election, this is Raila Odinga and Uhuru Kenyatta. Raila Odinga is the current prime minister. He is making a third attempt at the presidency. He tried unsuccessfully in 97 and again in 2007. And he claims that the vote rigging robbed him of victory in the elections in 2007. He is the presidential candidate for the Coalition of Reforms and Democracy, more commonly known here as CORD. So that's current Prime Minister Raila Odinga who's running for president. Then there's also Deputy Prime Minister Uhuru Kenyatta, right? Yes, there is Uhuru Kenyatta, who is the son of Kenya's first president, the late Jomo Kenyatta. Uhuru tried unsuccessfully to run for the presidency in 2002. Mr. Kenyatta is one of four prominent Kenyans who are facing charges for alleged crimes against humanity in relation to the violence witnessed here during the last election in 2007. Uhuru Kenyatta's running mate, William Ruto, has also been indicted by the ICC. Now, after the 2007 election, many warned that if Kenya's leaders were not vigilant, there would be more violence with this election. And I gather there have been many peace campaigns to try to stop that from happening. Have these peace campaigns worked? Well, 
you know, there have been a number of peace initiatives that have been undertaken since the disputed elections in 2007. This has been going on for several years. So rallies being held, peace rallies being held across the country. And as well, the police have come in to say that they will ensure that uh, Kenyans are safe as they go out to vote during these elections. Now, as you explained, the front runners in the election come from Kenyan families whose names are well known in the political ruling class and have been since independence for more than 50 years. There's a very hot hip hop star in Kenya right now named Giuliani, and he came up with a tune called Voters versus Vultures, which deals with the frustration with this ruling class and urges Kenyans to vote wisely. Let's hear some of this song. So, Michael, Giuliani's music video for Voters vs. Vultures was released a few weeks ago. What specifically does the song say? Well, I should say that Giuliani's song is one of many songs that are out there at the moment related to the elections. And what he is trying to tell Kenyans, basically, Giuliani, is is that some of the politicians have not fulfilled their promises to Kenyans, and uh, he feels that some of them should be voted out. And just to add in here that recently the Kenyan National Commission on Human Rights came out with a report, and this particular report indicates that there is concern about the potential for violence incidents as we approach elections. Journalist Michael Kaloki in Nairobi, thanks very much. Thank you. The post-election violence in Kenya five years ago prompted one group in Nairobi to take a stand through one simple idea, building a restroom that doubles as a refuge for women. You can see a video report on that project at theworld.org. Now, Dennis Rodman, he made the front page of North Korea's state newspaper today. The basketball star was pictured sitting next to the country's leader, Kim Jong-un. Later, Rodman told reporters what he thought of his host. He's proud. His country like him, not like him, love him, mm, yes. love him. And guess what? You know yes, yes, yes. I love him. I love the guy's awesome. I love him. He's awesome. Final words from Dennis Rodman about North Korean leader Kim Jong Un. Seems like a real bromance. Now, Rodman's trip wasn't sanctioned by the State Department, which normally frowns on Americans visiting the reclusive communist pariah nation. But that doesn't mean you can't go there. So says Nick Bonner. He's a tour director for Corio Tours based in Beijing, China. The company's been taking Americans to North Korea since 2002. It's like travel anywhere. You know, you book, you put down your deposit and uh, we can get you a visa. Providing you're not a journalist, you can get in. So where can you go and not go? And are Americans always shadowed by government minders? Um, American citizens, they can't exit by train. So that's the only limit from Pyongyang to Dandong on the Chinese border. But uh, really, no, the whole country is beginning to open up more so than it was sort of 20 years ago when I started. But still, you are very limited. Most people go to Pyongyang and then down to the border with South Korea. But we also open up the West and East Coast and even an internal flight up to the sacred mountain. It's called Mount Pekdu, and it's the birthplace of the Korean people. Now tell me why Americans can't leave via train. They can only leave by plane. 
I don't know. The train journey is pretty typical trip through the countryside. You're not seeing anything unusual. Everywhere you go, you will be given two Korean guides and a driver. Most people like to sort of say, I think, you know, this is our minders. And yes, they do look after you and they're, they're very good at that. But they're very polite, very affable people. Mm. That sounds kind of cushy. It's it's a sort of tour you'd send your grandmother on, really. You know, it's uh, you're from one you know revolutionary museum to the next, and then uh, a trip through the countryside, and then a meal. Yeah, you're, it's a pretty well scheduled tour from early in the morning, sort of early evening. They like to keep you busy for obvious reasons. Are there ever any surprises? For us, it's definitely the human interaction. We had an American who was down at the border and was saying, look, this is typical North Korea. Here it is, you know, hundreds of soldiers marching past and look at the control. And and I just just said to him, well, why don't you wave? And he waved and suddenly the whole sort of military parade stopped, turned to him and started shouting, you know, welcome to my country. Oh, my God. Hello. And simply because journalists are limited going to North Korea, the sort of images that we see in the press are often the parades and things. What people fail to see is at the end of a parade, you often get a thousand soldiers going, boy, do you see the girls in that last batch behind <laughs> us? The human angle is it's the same. You know, most people get up in the morning and rather thinking, uh, you know, death to American imperialists, they're saying, uh, you know, well, I make the bus in time if I have an extra coffee. Mm. So it's pretty normal. Well, you've had a lot of experience of getting lots of people into North Korea, but there's still a lot of mystery about the country. And the photos that we have seen are often just very orchestrated. Do you get the sense that you're being shown kind of a manufactured image of the place? Do you ever get to see behind the curtain, do you think? Yeah, you certainly are being shown a manufactured sort of city of uh, Pyongyang. It's a very beautiful city and you will go from one place to the other. And again, it's really up to us to break that. So, Nick, you know, a lot of critics of Dennis Rodman and his trip to North Korea say that, you know, it legitimizes an authoritarian regime. How do you respond to that? I think you have to make a decision. There are some people who say you shouldn't engage and other people who do believe in engagement. I'm definitely for the latter. I believe in engagement. I think it should be critical engagement. We took uh, a year before a basketball team and they trained with North Korean kids. These kids learned to do their first high fives with American citizens. I think that's great. Um, Having seen China changed their engagement. I'm a great believer in it. And the projects we've done, whether it be filmmaking, taking school kids in, you know, we've actually seen firsthand the impact it has. Um, Even taking tourism means that guides are learning English and interacting with foreigners. I, I certainly believe that the only future is through engagement. Nick Bonner, director of Choreo Tours in Beijing. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Just ahead, running the holy city with no shoes here on The World from PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. No deal in Washington, and the sequester is on. Huge story here, not so much overseas. Seems the rest of the world doesn't quite see all this directly affecting them. But there is one country that is facing possible fallout, and that's Israel. Israel gets billions of dollars in aid from Washington every year, and some of that could get sequestered. Javiv Retigur has been looking at the numbers that could be involved. He's a New York-based reporter with the Times of Israel. The first number, Javiv, is the money from the State Department to what they say support ongoing partnerships worldwide. Normally, that's $3.1 billion a year for Israel. So how much of that is at risk? 
It's hard to tell how Washington planners are looking exactly to make those cuts in different programs, but they're talking about an across-the-board 8.2% in certainly discretionary non-defense spending. Foreign aid counts under discretionary non-defense spending. And so you would be looking at 8.2% of $3.1 billion. Uh, we're talking just over $250 million lost. Uh, it's just important to point out that that's for fiscal year 2013, which ends September 30 in seven months, not over the course of a year. And how much money does the Pentagon currently give to Israel and how much of that is at risk? The Pentagon gives to two programs, both of them involved with missile defense. Um, we're talking about uh, $21 million lost to missile defense programs with Israel and another $17 million lost to one of the most important programs that Israel values and wants to advance and is building together with the United States, and that's the Iron Dome program. And that program would lose about $17 million. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, when Israel gets that defense money, I mean, wh- where exactly is it spent? Does some of that money actually come back to the U.S.? The vast majority of the money comes back to the U.S., really? almost, almost all of it. For example, um, in the $3.1 billion of the State Department for military assistance, you include the Namer Armored Personnel Carrier, which is built in Ohio. Um, you include the F-35 Strike Fighter, which Israel has been purchasing. So the money that goes to Israel actually gets spent largely in the United States. So if the sequester does hit Israel, it's actually going to affect U.S. jobs. It's going to hurt Israeli defense procurement and Israeli readiness, and it's going to hurt American jobs. Now, uh, one more sidebar, uh, Haviv, to all of this is that the Palestinians could also lose U.S. security assistance. Can you tell us how much they get from the U.S., and could that lead to possible destabilization in the West Bank? I haven't um, crunched the numbers on the Palestinians. They're a little bit complex because the financial support for the Palestinians goes from several different budgets. Um, But I can tell you that uh, Egypt, from the same military assistance budget of the State Department, gets about $1.3 billion, and Jordan gets about $300 million. And both of them are set to lose significant funds. And, And they can't afford it any more than Israel can. The reason that this is significant is not because, you know, the loss of 10% of American aid is something that countries can't prepare for. It's just it's unplanned. Nobody expected it to go into effect. I mean, everything the president has said, everything Congress has said, this was designed to be stupid and painful. Uh, (laughs) And it's going to be implemented in a way that's stupid and painful. You know, it's wild, though, that at least one country out there views sequestration as more consequential than many Americans see it today. Our missile defense programs... um, are not a major national investment by accident. You know, we, we, uh, we've seen them in use. We know that they're necessary. We know that they could decide the next conflict. Uh, war focuses the mind, um, and, and I, I, I tend to agree with you. I, I saw Gallup polls that only about half of Americans think sequestration is significant. I think uh, in the Israeli defense establishment, it's not half. I think it's everybody. Haviv Retegur of the Times of Israel, thanks for talking with us. Thank you for having me. The sequester was likely not on the minds of some 20,000 runners in Jerusalem today. They took part in the city's third annual marathon. The race went through parts of East Jerusalem. That sparked some Palestinian protests. But the world's Matthew Bell met one Egyptian-American runner who wanted to set aside politics and bring the same message to Jerusalem that he's carried in dozens of marathons. If there's such a thing as a typical marathoner, Raef Gergiz is not it. He's a slightly overweight 56-year-old who started running in 2005. His family told him to do something about his poor health. 
Gerges had been smoking heavily for 35 years, so he went out and ran a six-mile race, then did his first marathon, then another, and he's still at it. Last fall, he ran his 100th marathon. When we met at a pre-race event last night, Gerges wore his 50-state marathon club shirt, and at one point he started teasing a couple of 20-something Israeli guys who plan to run the half marathon this year. Next year you promise me I'm going to see you run with me, okay? And when you're crying, I'll come and tap in your shoulder and say, don't worry about it, let's cry together. You're crying? Uh, we're all going to cry for full marathon, for God's sake. <laughs> Especially when you hit mile 18 or 19, you hate yourself. You say, why am I so stupid? Everybody else enjoying their life. I'm the only freaking crazy person in the world running. Why? Why? Well, Gerges isn't actually that wild about running. Truthfully, he prefers fishing. But he's a man on a mission. Gerges is a Christian who's moved to be in Jerusalem for the first time. I even thought about to run the entire 26.2 miles barefooted. Barefoot? Absolutely. Why? It's a holy place. I could not believe that I'm walking in Jerusalem wearing my shoes. So you decided you're not going to do that? People in in America said, no, you're crazy. You have to train for it. And uh, I said, okay, let's just wear the shoes. (laughs) At the starting line this morning, Gerges got some funny looks. As always, he had on a black shirt with a big cross on it and the words, God is love. He carried a big white flag with the same words in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. He says it's a simple message that everyone from any religion needs to hear. Start loving each other because life is too short. It only takes a second for us to drop dead. And we're going to be judged about what we did and what we say. Start loving each other. By taking part in the Jerusalem Marathon, Raif Gerges is going against the grain. Growing up in Egypt, he learned that Israel is the enemy of the Arab world. Egypt's government, along with Muslim and Christian leaders, still tell Egyptian citizens not to set foot in Israel. Gergiz is also defying the call from Palestinians to boycott the marathon. But he told me he doesn't care much about politics. He just wants to spread his message, God is love, even if the running part is difficult for him. Kindergartners from the Jerusalem YMCA, who helped Gerges design his flag, cheered him on at the halfway point and then ran alongside Gerges for a couple of blocks. How are you feeling? Tired. <laughs> it is a very challenging course. No doubt in my mind, this is a lot, the hardest marathon that I ever ran. It was all on my 103 marathon, yes. This is the hardest one? Yes. It's a lot of hills. His strategy seemed to include a lot of walking. About six hours after he started, Gerges crossed the finish line, got down on his knees to kiss the ground, and thus completed his 104th marathon. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. We've got pictures of Raif Gerges and the Jerusalem Marathon at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. A tycoon wants to send a couple to Mars and back. Hmm, I can't decide how I feel about that. But coming up, some expert advice from a couple who sailed the world together. We used to institute 
a sort of siesta in the afternoon and then met up again, you know, about cocktail time. And that's a splendid idea. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Turkey and Greece, how do I put this? They've got a long history of not liking each other. There have been wars and the conflict over Cyprus, even at one point a campaign to drive Greeks out of Turkey. But times have changed. The Greek economy is in the dumps and expected to shrink again this year. Turkey, on the other hand, is projected to grow economically by 4%. As Matthew Brunwasser reports from Turkey, many young Greeks are doing what was once unthinkable, and settling down in Istanbul. In Istanbul's trendy Jahangir neighborhood, the Smyrna Cafe uses the old Greek name for the Turkish city now known as Izmir. With a booming economy and cosmopolitan energy, Istanbul is becoming increasingly attractive for young, educated Greeks like Apostolis Adelialis. Adelialis, who's 25, says he knows about the horrors and bitterness of the past, but they don't matter anymore. To me, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a country, a neighbor country. I have a lot of friends, Turkish friends. They also have Greek friends. It has completely changed. Istanbul was once Constantinople, the capital of Byzantium, the Greek-speaking part of the Roman Empire. And ever since 1453, when the Ottomans conquered the city, Greeks have viewed Turks as their eternal enemy. The Greek-Turkish War of 1922 saw some of the worst violence against civilians the world had ever seen. But the hard feelings are subsiding. Here on Istiklal Street, Istanbul's central pedestrian zone, Greeks and Turks joined together recently in a Greek cultural celebration. Michael Kalikusu is a descendant of Constantinople's Greeks. He says that just a few years ago, such a celebration would have been subdued. There were not as many Greek students and professionals back then to create sort of a tipping point and make this happen. Uh, so now there is just some, some more people, some, some new people that want to rekindle the traditions and the, uh, some of the customs that used to take place. Turkey's economy is booming, even though it's still a developing country. Even so, the deepening turmoil next door makes it pretty attractive for some Greeks. Thania Vezu is a teacher from northern Greece. Despite the fact I know that Turkey is not a paradise, I mean, it has a huge percent of unemployment, the average salary is really low, though the prices are not in a balance with the salaries, uh, it's uh, a solution for me at least. Because again, in June I will be fired, I'm a teacher and I will be fired, so I don't know if next year I will be working in a school. So it's, um, it's quite a uh, solution. Beyond the economic calculus made by migrants, Paulina Yoljolu says Turkey actually offers more cultural comforts than some wealthier European Union countries. My grand-grandparents uh, used to live here, like in minor Asia. You know, I grew, grew up with stories about Turkey, you know, many stories of people really 
being alike and sharing the same neighborhoods, same traditions. It's like a second home. It's something closer to me than Finland. There are no official numbers, but few are expecting a wave of Greeks to wash over Istanbul. Permission to work here is hard to come by, and it's still tough to get a good job without speaking fluent Turkish. But the city's buzz is attracting people from around the world, and economic pressure may succeed at opening Greeks' minds about their former enemies next door. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Istanbul. We've got a slideshow of young Greeks celebrating at a carnival party in Istanbul. That's at theworld.org. Grandula Vila Morena, terra da fraternidade, o povo é quem mais ordena dentro de ti, cidade. That's an austerity classic from Portugal. Let me explain. The song is called Grandula Vila Morena. It first became a symbol of protest during the 1974 revolution that brought democracy to Portugal. Now it's being revived to protest against austerity. And the man who is singing it just now is our next guest on The World. Carlos Bahia is Portuguese, but now lives in Danbury, Connecticut. And you love this tune, Carlos. You also play it on your radio program, Radio Familia, on WFAR in, in uh-huh. Danbury. Give us a translation of, say, the first two lines. What, what, what's being okay, said? Okay, so Grandula Vila Morena, big town of Grandula. It's the fraternity town. And then it says, o povo é que mais ordena. The people are the ones that put order. And then it says, dentro de ti, o cidade. Within you, city. O povo é que mais ordena. Again, the people are the ones that do what's best. And then it just goes on and mm. repeats itself throughout the song. It sounds uh, pretty patriotic and proud as, as songs yeah, go. It, it's a very patriotic song, definitely. So how did it first become a song of protest and who wrote it? Well, this song was originally produced and, and written by um, José Afonso, but he's well known by um, Zeca Afonso. And then um, during Salazar's regime... Salazar uh, was song, a former strongman dictator of Portugal. Exactly, yes. This song was actually banned because this song, to him, it kind of represented communism. And in 1974, when the revolution took place at midnight, this song was broadcast on a radio station called... Um, Radio Renascença, which is a, a Catholic radio station, uh, at midnight, this station put this song on the air, signaling to the people that let's go, let's do this revolution, let's move forward. Uh, we need change in this country. And that's how the song became so popular. Tell me how the song went from being the song that also happened to be a big winner at Eurovision, then kind of triggers the revolution in 1974. Now it's being used to protest against austerity. How, how do people explain that? The reason is because there's so much going on in the country. Uh, the country's not doing well. You know, people are struggling. You know, jobs are not that many. So they're bringing this song back to show the government and the politicians that the people of the country are the ones that matter. And, and Carlos, I pointed out earlier that you play the song on your program there in Danbury. Uh, what's it mean to you? Well, to me, it doesn't. In 1974, you know, I was only 10 years old, you know, so it didn't really have a big impact on me. But I do remember those times. You know, even my dad at that time, he was very scared because he was opposed to the government. He wanted democracy. He wanted freedom for the people. And, and, and I remember my dad being scared at that situation. And I play it on my radio program. And just last week, never before I had so many calls for this song. So it, it kind of shows that the people are really uh, bringing this song back and bringing back memories. 
Carlos Bahia of the radio program Radio Familia on WFAR in Danbury, Connecticut. Thank you. Thank you so much. People in Spain, like their neighbors in Portugal, are struggling to make ends meet in this economic crisis. Hundreds of thousands of Spanish families have been evicted for falling behind on their mortgages, for example. One member of Spain's royal family is among those in arrears, but apparently the Duke of Palma doesn't have to worry about losing his home, as the world's Jerry Haddon explains. See, the Duke, Iñaki Urdangarin, lost his job recently running a foundation because he's been accused of stealing millions of dollars from it. He can't access his savings or assets either. A judge embargoed them. In effect, the king's son-in-law is penniless and potentially facing prison. It's been six months since he paid the mortgage on his multi-million dollar house here in an exclusive neighborhood in Barcelona. Under Spain's banking rules, he's a prime candidate for eviction, like the hundreds of thousands of other Spaniards who've been put on the street in the last couple of years. Evictions have become so common and so cruel, activists say, that a huge protest movement has grown up around them. Now when police arrive to remove someone, they're often met by angry crowds like this one in the city of A Coruña, who try to block their way. In Spain, even if you hand over your keys to the bank, the debt is still yours to pay. The financial pressure and fear of being homeless has led to several suicides in recent months. But the Duke of Palma apparently won't feel that pressure. His bank has reportedly granted him a four-year reprieve on his mortgage. That isn't going down well here, given his wealth and the corruption charges against him. Just up the hill from the Duke and Duchess's residence, graffiti on a highway overpass reads, they're not suicides, they're assassinations, referring to the eviction-related deaths. A university historian named Manuel Fernandez happens to be strolling by with his grandkids, Fernandez is a neighbor of the Duke's. He says he hasn't heard about the royal reprieve, but he isn't surprised. The laws here in Spain come from our historical isolation from Central Europe, he says. This has led us to have not only medieval customs, but also a medieval mentality. Medieval, he says, meaning that those with power and influence tend to live well, while the poor take it on the chin. Case in point, perhaps, that eviction protest last week in A Coruña. The evictee was an 85-year-old widow who'd missed two months of rent payments, totaling about $400. The crowd was able to stop the police that time. And an unlikely hero appeared. A local fireman refused to cut a thick chain that activists had wrapped around the widow's door. Instead, he returned to his truck and stuck a Stop Evictions Now poster to the windshield. Today, the head of Spain's Stop Evictions Now quipped on Twitter, I won't come out to save the Duke from eviction. His bank is already doing that. For The World, I'm Cherry Haddon in Barcelona. Ever find yourself eating something, say, an apple, and wondering, how did cavemen figure out that this was so good? Well, basically trial and error. They'd eat an apple, and if they didn't keel over, they'd eat another. If one of them dropped dead after eating a lethal mushroom, though, the rest knew not to eat that again. And yet, even with evolution, humans still want to see whether some of those deadly foods can be tamed. There are chefs who can prepare some of the deadliest foods and make them edible. Pufferfish, for example. According to doctors, one fork full of ill-cooked pufferfish, and you've got about 17 minutes to live. So here's a question for you. In what country would you be most likely to be served pufferfish? They call it fugu there. 
It's a country that consumes an estimated 6% of the world's fish harvest, so lots of fish-crazy chefs. The answer to our geo-quiz is coming up in just a bit. With the world's regular coverage of international news, I'm often tempted to think I know a story. But then Carol Hills, who covers political cartoons from around the globe for the show, throws one of these cartoons at me and it completely changes my view of the story. Carol, you've come across a great example of this from Bangladesh. Yes, it's Bangladesh and it's a complicated story, but it's worth telling. What happened was I came across a couple of political cartoons that depicted hanging And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I read the news, talked to some Bangladeshi bloggers, talked to some cartoonists. And it's all about a war crimes tribunal in Bangladesh and the sentences that are being meted out. And what's interesting is this is a war crimes tribunal for Bangladesh's war of independence, which happened 42 years ago. Wow. A trial now for violence that's 40 plus years old. What took them so long? Well, turbulent politics, as we all know from reading about Bangladesh or hearing about it over the years. It's amazing that that war of independence, just nine months, but the amount of carnage was extraordinary. It's just this kind of cross that Bangladesh bears. It's this scar on them and something that just infuses everything about Bangladeshi politics. And the accepted figure for how many Bangladeshis died is three million. Mm. Some people dispute that, some scholars and researchers, but that's the figure that Bangladeshis passionately believe. And the people being tried in these war crimes tribunals, which are going on now, are Bangladeshis who sided with Pakistan and did not want to become an independent Bangladesh. And They are accused of enormous atrocities, and it's taken this long for this thing to finally happen. There were early attempts. They failed. There were coups, messy politics. So it's just this huge deal for for Bangladesh. So now back to how this moment uh, with this uh, war crimes tribunal is being kind of visualized in political cartoons. People getting hanged. What's that a reference to? It's a reference to the fact that the war crimes tribunal started giving out sentences of life in prison. And this this spontaneous movement in a square in Dhaka called Shabag Square, these bloggers, these political cartoonists. That's the Bangladeshi capital. Bangladeshi capital, secular types, and then older people, younger people, but people who passionately believe that Bangladesh has to give stiff sentences and these people have to hang. And it sounds kind of harsh. I think, wait, you're groovy, you're bloggers, you're cartoonists, you want a secular society, but you want a death penalty. And what they feel is that earlier attempts at this have failed, that a life sentence in Bangladesh means nothing, that a new person can come into power and they can be released. So because it's such an enormous thing in the Bangladeshi psyche, these war crimes, these atrocities, they, they feel that justice is for these perpetrators to be hanged. So are the political cartoonists in Bangladesh kind of pointing out the irony of these peaceful protesters asking for these people to get hanged, or are the political cartoonists themselves also saying these people need to hang? The latter. And I spoke to the political cartoonists and the bloggers, and I kept saying, from our vantage point, this kind of looks creepy. And they say, oh, no, 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 no. So they don't really see the irony unless it's brought up to them. And then they sort of get it, but they feel like this would be justice moving forward. So it's the protesters who want some of these defendants to hang. It's also the political cartoonists. Absolutely. And the bloggers and many Bangladeshis. And the pushback comes from the Islamist party in Bangladesh, who still holds a lot of sway. It was members of this Islamist party who were the collaborators with Pakistan, 
and many of the war criminals were members of this Islamist party. And so they've been pushing back this Islamist party, accusing bloggers, political cartoonists, all these sort of peaceniks out in the square in Dhaka of being anti-Islamist and trying to stoke that kind of anti-Muhammad stuff. And members of the Islamist party are rioting. So it's, it's a complicated mess. It's hard to convey. But I can't say enough how much of a watershed moment this is for Bangladesh. When you speak to Bangladeshis, they feel like this is really, really important what's going on. Once again, the cartoons and Carol Hills turn my head around on the story. And you can see a slideshow narrated by Carol of Bangladeshi cartoons that comment on the war crimes tribunal and the continuing violence in Bangladesh. That's at theworld.org. Carol, thanks as always. You're welcome, Marco. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We're going to investigate delicacies now that might kill you if you don't get them cooked right, like pufferfish, a delicacy in Japan, which is the answer to our geo-quiz, but also elsewhere. Master Chef Greg Wallace knows how to whip up a batch of lethal pufferfish and make them non-lethal. He's a pretty busy guy, so we have to catch up with him on his commute. Let's give it a go. Hello. Hi, this is Marco Werman calling from the uh, World Program in Boston. Oh, hello, my friend. Are you ready to talk about pufferfish and uh, making deadly foods non-deadly? Yeah. So you did, in fact, serve pufferfish. Where did you get it, and how do you prepare it? Uh, I have no idea how you prepare it. I know we we had to uh, have it properly prepared by a Japanese sushi chef, and uh, very rarely do you get it out of Japan. I know that certain organs have to be removed very carefully before you prep it. And I have to say, the puffer fish, I feel, is more of a texture than it, than it is a flavor. It's, it's got a fair bit of give on it. It's not like any other fish I've had. Perhaps a little bit like uncooked squid. Yeah. I mean, you were doing this two nights this week as part of a charity event to encourage people to remember nonprofit organizations in their last wills. To add flavor to the proceedings... We held it in the, in the crypt of a church in the city of London. So it was eerie before you even walked in. And serving people food that could potentially kill them was a way of grabbing attention, and it, and it certainly seemed to work. Potentially the last supper, but it wasn't for anybody. So tell me a bit more about some of the other dishes that were served that night, Greg. We definitely did go to town. We had the fruit from a nut in Indonesia, and the whole nut is poisonous. It's only the small fruit inside of it that's actually edible. And even then... It can prove deadly if you don't get it at the right stage of ripeness. We even had a chili that comes from India so strong that the Indian army powder it down and use it in bombs to disperse rioting crowds. We found a chef who'd previously worked at Michelin-style restaurants who said he would take the job on. That was the other problem we had, is no chef wanted to ruin their reputation by serving people food that, at best, was going to be okay middling ground was going to make them ill, at worst may kill them. And all the diners actually had to sign a legal document saying they wouldn't hold us responsible. (laughs) And still we didn't have any problems at all filling the restaurant up. It was a fun evening. Do you know what was potentially very lethal was the amount of drinks that went to each table. (laughs) Um, That's uh, quite extraordinary. So after having digested this menu, how are you feeling today? Uh, I'm, I feel absolutely fine. Actually, the, the worst thing is uh, the slight headache I've got because we had um, a snake wine, which quite frankly tasted like vinegar, which was just atrocious, <laughs> but I felt obliged to taste. We had moonshine, <laughs> but this one was legal, made in Ireland from, from amongst other things, potato peelings. And we, uh, we also had absinthe, which was uh, reportedly what Van Gogh 
was drinking before he went mad enough to cut his ear off. Yeah, so I gather there was plenty of that flying around as well as the food. <laughs> I gather a number of American GIs during World War II drank some uh, moonshine absinthe and uh, kind of died. Is that right? Then you know what we were up against then, sir. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. It wasn't just the uh, mad foods on offer. It was the. Uh, it was the crazy alcohol the barmen were knocking up as well. Uh, it did make for a great night. I mean, I looked down at one stage. There were like six of us on the table. Uh, I think there were um, two half-eaten plates and about twenty-five half-drunk glasses. <laughs> <laughs> what about a poisonous dessert? Well, the dessert, I'm, I'm a big pudding fan, and that was probably my best dishes because they mostly resembled stuff that we would normally eat. I can't even remember anything bad in there. I think by now we were running out of ideas and we were sort of using unpasteurized milk and saying that could possibly be dangerous. <laughs> I think by then all the, all the really dangerous stuff would go, but we still needed to give somebody something sweet. Master Chef Greg Wallace, thanks for speaking with us. Real pleasure, my friends. <laughs> Take it easy. If you've got nothing else going on this weekend, how about planning a trip? A long one, a really long one. Take your significant other on a 50-million-mile, 16-month trip to Mars and back. Yep, Mars. That's the plan drawn up by U.S. financial tycoon Dennis Tito. It aims within five years to launch a bare-bones mission to Mars. Two travelers would get within 100 miles of the red planet and then come right back. Tito said that he's looking for a couple, preferably older, preferably married, to carry out the estimated billion-dollar mission. Why a couple? Well, first off, the craft would only fit two. And secondly... This couple should be a bonded couple, ideally a married couple, that have a long history together and that can support one another and provide the closeness and warmth that will definitely be needed on those lonely, lonely nights when... You are far, far away from Earth. Muitas vezes o coração não consegue compreender. Imagine being cooped up with anyone for 500 days, even a loved one. Okay, stop imagining. It could give you nightmares. Bill and Laurel Cooper kind of know what it's like. They spent decades sailing the world together. There are differences. The wide open sea is not the same as a vacuum-sealed space capsule surrounded by the infinite blackness of space. But still, Bill and Laurel Cooper put in their time together in close quarters. And they're still married, still talking. The spats were quite rare. Um, you know, you didn't, we didn't quarrel very much. And when we did, we'd go to opposite end of the boat and sulk and send the cat with messages between us. That's Laurel Cooper, who turned 84 yesterday. She let the BBC in on the couple's secret. We used to institute a sort of siesta in the afternoon, and we'd go off and do our own thing for a couple of hours. And that was very good. You didn't speak to anyone else. You just got on with what you wanted to quietly and then met up again, you know, about cocktail time. And that's a splendid idea. Ah, yes, gin and tonics on the bow. Bill Cooper, you see, spent years in the British Royal Navy. At the end of World War II, Bill was stationed in Malta, where the British Navy had liberated 13 Nazi yachts. So we took one of them, and uh, Laurel and I, together with her brother, we circumnavigated Sicily, and we didn't see a single other yacht the whole way. That was my first ocean cruise with a six-month-old baby, so that was quite interesting, mm -hmm. quite a lot to cope with there. Mm -hmm. Never a dull moment. After 35 years, Bill and Laurel Cooper have dropped anchor for good. They're done going around the world. And as for anything out of this world and becoming astronauts, the Coopers say thanks, but no thanks. I don't think, however suitable people may think we are, I don't think space is our thing. No, I don't like flying. 
So Bill's definitely out, and as for Laurel, she doesn't mind flying, but she says she can't imagine the boredom of lying down through a 16-month trip to Mars. Lying down? Oh, she's jolly good at lying down. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm very good at that, but uh, can, can't you imagine how stiff you'd get? You know, the psychologists are going to have to invent tasks for them because if they're not driving, they're going to need something to do, and I can just see the psychiatrists inventing little tasks for them to do all day long in order to keep them occupied. Do up the screw on Tuesday and on Wednesday you unscrew it and then on Thursday you do it up again. God knows what they'd find to do. Yes, that's what bothers me. Not enough to do. And the couple also say it would be a shame to go all that way and then not even get to set foot on the red planet. I can see that. So there you have it. Words for couples to live by even if you're not going to Mars. A little David Bowie ending the show today. His tune, Life on Mars, courtesy of Brazil's Seu Jorge. Our own theme music is composed by Eric Goldberg. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios, I'm Marco Werman. Have a great weekend, everyone. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.